Appreciate that singing this morning. Wonderful to sing these songs together. You know, it's hard to believe, but uh, we have made it to the last message in the book of Philippians. And so we're coming to the end of the series. So we'll, we'll be in uh, Philippians chapter 4 today. So if you have your Bible, open it to Philippians chapter 4. We'll, uh, we're going to look at the grace of God. This is really the closing to this letter, as uh, we have made our way all the way through. So Philippians 4, uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 21 here in just a moment as you, as you turn there. But uh, it's always, uh, always a, I think, a, a, a joyous time to know that you have uh, made it through another book of the Bible together. Uh, it's a little bit sad. Of course, we'll miss... Uh, going through this letter together, but uh, uh, God is good, and um, hopefully the things that we have learned through this, we will continue, uh, continue in as we go forth. So Philippians 4, beginning in verse 21, says the following, salute every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. All right, so as we, as we consider this letter together and this closing parts of this letter as we, we've read it together, I want to remind us of just a couple of things about, really from all the way at the beginning, that we perhaps have forgotten about. Or, or One of the things about this church here at Philippi, remember Philippi is a Roman colony, a Roman colony, and uh, this was a church that was planted uh, first with uh, just a few folks, uh, one being a Philippian jailer, right? another being a prominent businesswoman. And, and these folks uh, there on Paul's second missionary journey um, expanded to form this church at Philippi, a church with a very special relationship to Paul, uh, one in which uh, we see a letter that is very personal. In fact, of all the epistles, I, I think this is uh, both the most personal and, in regard to Paul, the most autobiographical, the most often that he talks about himself. And uh, this is a church where he felt comfortable and able to do that. Uh, he, was, he was able to even use himself as an example because he knew that they would respond in the right way for it, knowing his heart. Throughout the, the letter itself, uh, we saw various things along the way, some of it issues of unity going on, folks who were preaching the gospel out of contention and strife, and of course, Paul pointed back to the fact that uh, they ought to be rejoicing that the gospel is being preached, right? When the true gospel is going out, re rejoice in it. Uh, there were some ladies who weren't getting along, and Paul encouraged the church to help them to get along along the way. Uh, there were folks who were relying upon their own self-righteousness, and we saw Paul point to his own life and uh, just, just simply say, hey, if, uh, if anyone has the right to boast, it's me. And he listed his accomplishments, and yet he said that they are as nothing in comparison to being in Christ. And, and so that is the church uh, that, that we are now saying goodbye to. As um, we had really a, a beautiful high point in verse 20, 
a, a doxology about how wonderful God is and the glory uh, of God. And, and now we are moving on to really just a, a, a closing here. But it's, it's an important closing. It's a significant closing. And so we're going to look at this together this morning. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. We pray, Lord, that your word would challenge our hearts this morning. Father, prepare our hearts to receive truth. And Lord, as we think about this church that you so graciously worked in, uh, in that day, we pray, Lord, and, and recognize that even today you are still at work. You work in churches today. You work in the hearts of people today, your children. And Father, we, we ask that once again our, our hearts would be encouraged, that, Father, we would even be excited about what you're going to do, because you are a God who cares about your people, who is active and at work in the world today. And, and Father, we, we pray that as your children, you would use us for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that we see from the very beginning uh, of these verses here is that gospel grace being, brings love. And another way of saying that is when, when the, the message of the gospel goes out and people are united under, under um, the, the word of God and under the gospel itself, when people come to Christ... When, when that happens, it, it brings about a, a love among believers, right? A, a, a uniting love um, between one another. Uh, verse, verse 21, we, we see this uh, beginning, right? Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. And, and so at the very beginning here, we have, have this recognition, salute every saint. Now, that's, as we think about the very beginning of the letter, all the way at the, the start, the, the address was to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. That was the, the beginning of the letter. So those same saints, that idea of the saints here, is now once again being mentioned. Now, when you say the word saint today, right, in our culture, in our context, in society, a lot of different things come to mind, perhaps, and some may be biblical and some may not be biblical. And so when, as, we, as we think about this, what is it we're talking about when we use that word saint? What is it that we're referring to? Well, this idea of saint is, has the root, the idea of being set apart or, or holy, um, it actually goes back, we could say, all the way to Exodus 19.6, You shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the, the children of Israel. And so we had a nation set apart to God in the case of Israel. But now we're talking about individual believers. And, and so the, the, the same concept, the same idea of, of those who are being set apart to God is now being used to refer to those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, now it is being used for, for those who are the children of God. Another way of saying it may be God's holy people. That, that's um, perhaps words that uh, might cause us to uh, fear a little bit if we were to think about it, right? 
I, I mean, if, if, if you were referred to regularly as God's holy people, I mean, what, what would that make you think of in your heart? I, I, I mean, if, if we, you know, in some sense today, I think in our language, we have softened some of what these words would have meant in that, to that original audience. I, I mean, just, just imagine, get, you know, the, the pastor got up and started every service with, good to see you today, God's holy people. Uh, you, you know, I mean, I, I don't know, does it make you feel a little bit, a little bit uneasy, maybe? Is he talking about me? <laughs> you know, I mean, are we looking, <laughs> who's he talking to? That's this word. I mean, that, that is what this word would have been saying to them. And I think perhaps when, when we wander down this language sometimes, it can cause us to forget what we're being called to as believers, what, what God has called us to as his children. And, and so uh, Paul's not afraid of that. Right? To the saints who are at Philippi, to God's holy people who are at Philippi, so, so much so that, that if, we, if we look at that verse, right, salute every saint in Christ Jesus, that, that word there is, is actually uh, very individual. And so what, what I mean by that is, is as that's being written there, um, every saint in, in Christ Jesus, that, it has the idea of, of going almost one by one, very personal. This isn't to all the saints, plural, in Philippi. This is to every believer in Philippi. Every holy one in Philippi. And it's a subtle difference, but it's one that I think makes clear that those who belong to God, every single one, are called to be these holy ones. Salute every saint, every holy one in Christ Jesus. And it reminds them certainly of the fact that, that each and every one of them is, uh, is truly, if they're born again, referred to as this holy one. Now, we, we could very much just say the same thing about our church today, right? To, to us, right? all the saints in Hampton, to all the holy ones in Hampton. That, that would be how this letter would begin in its closing here uh, if it were to be a letter to us. Now, let's, let's be clear. Everyone in that church in Philippi had broken the law. Everyone in this church in Hampton has broken the law. And just like there, they had committed every different sort of manner of law-breaking you could think of. And that's true here as well. Right, we, we have broken the law in many, many different ways. But you know, in Philippi, not one single person was united to Christ because they were a lawkeeper. Not one single person person in the church of Philippi. Not one single holy one was united to Christ because they were a law keeper. And the same is true 
the holy ones here in Hampton, right? The saints here in Hampton. You're not united to Christ because you're a saint. You are a saint because you're united to Christ. Let me say that again. You are not united to Christ because you are a saint. You are a saint because you are united to Christ. And so if you've repented and believed the gospel, you are a saint, not because of your merit, but because of Christ's merits. And, and that's what we see here, right? They are saints in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the reason. They're called saints, they're called holy ones, not because they're so good, but because Jesus is. And, and so when, when that message goes out, you know, holy ones in Hampton, don't look at yourself and say, oh no. Look at your Savior and say, yeah, that's him. That's him. That's who he is. That's the one whose blood covers me. That is my Savior, Jesus. You know, this, this is one of those things where we are so blessed as believers because it's not on the basis of our own merit, but it's on the basis of Jesus Christ. And this reminds them of that. You know, it's also the reason why we are united with those who maybe we wouldn't normally in this life be associated with. Right, whether that's a different social class, economic class, whatever it is, different race, different geography, different nation, whatever it is, those things come about uh, because of the gospel itself, because of the work that God's doing. So the gospel grace brings, brings love, and that's what we just considered together, but you know, gospel grace also brings fellowship. It brings about fellowship. And so we, we see that um, here in verse 22, where it says, All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. You know, there, there is an unusual uh, merging of people under the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Those who, who normally would not interact, no, normally would not fellowship together, normally would not get along are united under Jesus Christ in the family of God. Where is it so weird here? Of course, well, Caesar's household. You know, that's, that's the strange one there, obviously. I mean, I, I don't know if you have, you have ever interacted, and, I, you know, I, I think about to my younger years, and you, you think about maybe, you know, middle school, high school, you remember those days? And there were all these cliques and groups and things like that. And you, do you remember those days? Yeah. You know, and the sports guys were over there, and the cheerleaders were over there. And then you had the chess club, or, you know, <laughs> you know whatever it was. I mean, you know what I mean? There were, there were all these different groups. And, uh, you know, a lot of times there wasn't a lot of interaction across the groups and all, all these different things. Uh, have, have you ever today, you know, don't answer it out loud, but Think in your mind, think in your heart. Have you ever today been in a situation where as you thought about the gospel or sharing the gospel, where you said something like, I don't know about that one. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? I, I know that, you know, this, this may, may be true, but 
I, I, I don't know about that one. Right? And, and maybe it was because the person you came up with, may, maybe they were poor, maybe they smelled bad, maybe they were homeless. Maybe they were a different race. Maybe they had a certain attitude about them or a certain air about them. Whatever it was. Maybe they were rich and you weren't and you were scared to go up to them. Maybe they're a celebrity and you're not. Or maybe you just didn't like their hair, but whatever it was, right? I mean, those things, those tugs, those pulls... I think, are still in our lives and our hearts as sinners today. And it's one of those, one of those challenges that, that we see that even Paul himself was over, able to overcome. Now, if you were with us in uh, Sunday school over our last few weeks, you saw that Jesus had no problem overcoming this in regard to the Samaritan woman, right? a, a, a woman who had had multiple husbands, who who would have been a, a, a woman without a good reputation um, and would have likely been ostracized even for her immorality within her own village. And yet Jesus went to her when most Jews wouldn't have, not just because she was a woman, but because she was a Samaritan. And Jesus went to her. Well, here we have Paul, and he's referring to who this letter is from, right? This is not writing to the recipients. These are the ones who are sending the letter who were with Paul. All the saints salute you, those who are with him, right? The holy ones who are with Paul. And which ones? Chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Now, remember, Paul's in prison right now. He's in prison, he's in jail, and he's locked up. Um, and, and so, who's the one who has locked him up? Caesar, right? I mean, in, in particular, uh, this is probably the Emperor Nero at this time who, who was in charge. And, and Paul at this time has an expectation that even though he's in jail, he's probably going to be released. We, we see that he is looking forward to and expecting that. We've looked at this together, Philippians 1.25, having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. What's he saying? I'm going to be with you again. Right? In order to be with you again, what does he have to do? He's got to get out of jail. And, and so Paul expects that he is going to leave jail and he's going to be with them again. But in the midst of this, this is the Emperor Nero, right? That's who's in charge now. That's the Caesar of the day. And, and when Paul writes that those who are of Caesar's household, the, the, these are those who actually stay in the emperor's home. Perhaps this is part of the, of the Praetorian Guard. This would have been others. Perhaps there were others who came and brought food or other things who were a part of that household. But, but in the midst of it, Paul, as he's writing here, says, there are those who have come to Christ who are around me, the very ones who are part of this plan and this program who have me in jail, right? And they've come to Christ. And now guess what? They're part of those saints too. They're holy ones of God. They're believers. With with the same rights, the same standings, the same privileges that we ourselves have. And so this unlikely fellowship is described here. You know, after this, Rome would burn. It would burn down. There'd be a great fire, right? 
History tells us that Nero was probably out of town when that fire started. Um, but what happened was, when he came back, he rebuilt the things the way he wanted. Right? He, he, it burnt down a large portion, and rather than putting the same houses back here or there, he, he basically, uh, to use our language, bulldozed it and, and redesigned the plans, right, to make it the way he wanted it to be. And, and you can imagine if you just lost your home or your business, et cetera, et cetera, you might not be real happy about them bulldozing the embers and taking the property and reusing it in whatever way they wanted, right? You, you might not be too happy about that. And so one of the w things that came up was people started blaming Nero for the fire. You know, he, he, oh, he just wanted us out of the houses. He wanted to burn it down. That's, that's why he did that. And, and so he started getting political backlash as a result of this. And, and so he needed a way to draw attention away from himself. And so he decided to unite the people around a common enemy, Christians. That's, that was his desire. And so, so instead of you know, these calamities, often you'd have a, have a forest fire or something like that, or a big fire in town, or you know, whatever it was, a flood takes place. In that day, normally they would have blamed the gods. Right? The Romans would have blamed the gods. And, and, and normally would have done something to seek to appease the gods to make, so that they wouldn't be happy anymore. That's typically what would have happened in that day. But this time, they didn't blame the gods. They blamed Nero. And they looked to him and he said, I need to figure out something to do. It was written this way by the historian Tacitus, I'm going to read this to you. Wherefore, in order to allay the rumor he put forward as guilty and afflicted with the most exquisite punishments, those who were hated for their abominations and called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name was arrived, Christ there, uh, was punished by the procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. This noxious form of religion, checked for a time, broke out again, not only in Judea and its original home, but also throughout the city, Rome, where all abominations meet and find devotees. Obviously, this is an unbelieving historian who's writing this. Therefore, first of all, those who confessed, i.e. to being Christians there, were arrested. Then as a result of their information, a large number were implicated, not so much on the charge of incendiarism, in other words, not so much for starting the fire, but for hatred of the human race. They died by methods of mockery. Some were covered with the skins of wild beasts and then torn by dogs. Some were crucified. Some were burned as torches to give light at night. Whence, after scenes of extreme cruelty, commiseration was stirred for them, although guilty and deserving the worst penalties. For men felt that their destruction was not on account of the public welfare, but to gratify the cruelty of one Nero. That's an unbelieving historian writing of the events of what was, was taking place to Christians in Rome just a short time later. That's the same 
household, the same Nero's household, who Paul here is referring to as the saints, right? The believers within that household, those who came to Christ. Just a few short years later, you can imagine if there are those within Nero's household who are carrying out these horrendous things, they would have been there in Paul's time as well. And yet some came to Christ. What's going on? How does this happen? Well, God worked in hearts. He changed minds. And some were saved, even in the emperor's home. You know, 62 is probably when Paul would have been released, 64 through 68, likely during the time of, uh, it was likely during that time that Peter was killed by Nero in Rome. All right, some, some believe that Paul was killed there, although there's probably more dispute about that. Before all that occurred, Paul went to these believers in Caesar's home. He, he had them, as they came to him, he would share the gospel with them. He would share the gospel with them. Why? Because he knew the change that took place, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the, the, the gospel made it into the seat of depravity in Rome itself. And God today still sends the gospel to the far corners of the earth. People all around the world can be saved. Whether it is postmodern societies and post-postmodern societies like Europe today, whether it's in the jungles of Africa, whether it's even to the handful of cannibalistic tribes that still exist out in Papua New Guinea, God sends the gospel today to the farthest reaches of the earth. You know, if you think about how hard it is perhaps to reach somebody in Hampton today with the gospel, Can you imagine what it was like to share the gospel with the group of people who were committing the atrocities of Nero? Can you imagine what it would have been like for Paul to to share the gospel with those jailers? Can you imagine what it would have been like to share the gospel with those coming from Caesar's household? What does the gospel do? What does Jesus do? It unites people. And that's why gospel grace brings fellowship. You know, Paul could look at any person and say to them, let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you about my Savior. Let me tell you about Christ. Let me tell you about the Messiah. And, and he, could, he could do that unashamedly because he knew that God had the power to change lives. He could change hearts. And it didn't matter who it was. God could work in them. Thirdly, today we see that gospel grace brings hope. As we, we think about what God does and in the life of the believer, you know, the grace of God is truly the answer in terms of what sustains believers today. Verse 23 says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You know, this grace, this part of this parting prayer of Paul's for this church at at Philippi. We speak of grace as undeserved favor of God, something of those along those ways, a gift that we don't deserve, whatever 
we, we describe that as. But as we think about this, right, this undeserved favor of God, but, you know, more than that, it is the undeserved favor of God that is being bestowed upon those who without a doubt deserve wrath. In a sense, that makes it even more special, right? Those who deserve wrath are, are receiving the, the favor of God. They, not only do they not deserve it, but what they do deserve is the very wrath of God. And instead, they, re, they receive his grace. You know, it's an it's amazing thing for, for believers today as we think about that. It, it, what happens for a believer? What happens for a holy one? Right? One who is a saint today. What, what happens to them? Well, my, my law-breaking, when I do those things that are sins against God, what happens? Well, how does God deal with it? With grace. That's his disposition toward us, is one of grace. Now, it is, it is interesting, as you think about it, but grace... And I, two, two statements here. I want you to follow along closely with these. But grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to bestow it in the presence of human merit. In other words, grace is not grace anymore if somehow somebody expects that they earned it, right? If somebody expects that they earned it. It's not grace anymore if you've somehow earned it. Is that, you follow that? It, it, it's... So grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to bestow it in the presence of human merit. Uh, another way to say it is this. We, we can't earn the grace of God. We cannot earn the grace of God. There is no merit. There is nothing that we could do to somehow earn the grace of God. But here, here's the second part of that. Grace also ceases to be grace if God is compelled to withdraw it in the presence of human demerit. Put that to you this way. Grace isn't grace anymore if God can withdraw it because you didn't do right. Grace, as we described it before, is undeserved. It's not on the basis of merit or demerit. It's on the basis of God offering his undeserved favor. Now, I want to be clear. Oh, well, let me ask you this question first. I want you to think about it. Because I think this sometimes comes up in our minds and hearts even today. Um, don't, don't answer this out loud, but ponder it in your thought. How many of you maybe felt that God somehow removed his grace from you this week? You ever feel like that? you're lacking the grace of God or you did something wrong or, or something like that and somehow it was removed from you. Grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to withdraw it in the presence of human demerit. I want to be clear, that doesn't mean that God won't discipline sin. Right? He promises to discipline sin. He promises to chasten us. Do you feel conviction after you've sinned? If you're a believer, you should. That's grace. That's God's grace. 
Do you feel compelled to make things right after you've sinned against someone else? That's grace. That's God's grace working in your life. Do, do you feel your heart rejoice as, as you think about how a particular sin, after you've confessed it to God, was dealt with on the cross? That thought was of grace. That's God giving you grace. That's the grace of God. You know, in the Gospel of John, John 1.16, John put it this way, from his, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That grace stacked up on top of grace. Just grace isn't enough, right? He has given us grace upon grace. And, and that is oh, it's so wonderful, such a privilege for what we see receive from our, our God. See, gospel grace brings hope. What sustains you in life? If you're a believer today, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, what, what sustains you in life? You know, uh, you, you hear these type things, and uh, maybe you hear it on stories, or what was your motivation, or this, that, and the other. Maybe it's an athlete, and ask them a question, what, what drives you, this, that, and the other. What, what do you hear? Well, you know, a parent. Right? Parent. Mom helped me all this way. She believed in me the whole way. What do you, uh, a job. I just love whatever. Fill in the blank. I love whatever this is. I love science. I love football. I love right, whatever, the, whatever it is. Fill in the blank. You hear that kind of stuff. I love singing. I love music. Spouse. What, what is it that sustains you in life? Every single one of those things that I just mentioned is temporary. A, a football player is only one play away from having their career end right, with a broken leg or something like that. Only one play away. Right? Parent, spouse, tomorrow's not promised for any of us. What job? I don't know that we'll have that at the end of the week. But all of those things are temporary. But what sustains us through life? Grace. God's grace. You know, some have trouble believing that after you've trusted Christ, after salvation, that, that you're sustained by grace. In fact, some people believe somehow that after salvation, you're sustained by having more merits than demerits. You're sustained by doing more good than bad. Even, even believers sometimes get this idea in their mind. But the great thing for a believer is, is that my acceptance before God is not dependent upon me. It's dependent upon my Christ, my Savior. It's dependent upon Him. And that's the wonderful beauty. That is the hope that believers have. Because it, if salvation were dependent upon me, I don't think I'd have it, right? I mean, I, I can't cling on to it. I can't hold it. I don't have the strength. I still choose wrong. I still choose, still choose sin. 
but it's not dependent upon me. It's dependent upon my Christ. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are you saved through faith, but not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's dependent upon Christ. So as we think about that today, what, what do we want? Well, may grace be with you all today. May grace be with you all tomorrow. May grace be with you all for eternity. E- even for the Philippians, remember, remember that was the church that couldn't stop the people from fighting? Yeah, even for the Philippians, right? Um, e- even the, the church where some people were fighting, even about sharing the gospel, yeah, even for them. Yeah, they, they need grace too. And, and so this is for them. And, and that church with those self-righteous people who thought that they were so great, do they get God's grace? Yes, yes, they need grace too. Apart from God's grace, they won't make it. And neither will we. Right? We are utterly dependent upon the grace of God. But by God's grace, every one of his saints will make it. Every single one. Grace truly is the only sustainable hope for the believer. So, so what do we have here? Well, Gospel grace brings love. It, it unites people together with, the, with affections toward one another and caring about one another in ways that we would, would never expect, so much so that gospel grace brings about fellowship between people who normally would not get along at all. Gospel grace brings hope. It, it brings hope knowing that the future is secured and believers hang on to it and cling to it. Going to jump ahead here a little bit, but want to remind you that as we think about this book of Philippians, and we considered it from the very beginning, here's Paul describing for us and, and providing for us an example, a model of Christian maturity. But he's also called upon us as believers for for us, for ourselves to model that maturity for others. And, and so we have received from God this joyful model of what Christ-like maturity looks like. And as a church, we, we have the responsibility not just to receive the model, but to demonstrate it, to model it for others and what he's put before us. And so as we close the series this morning, we want to Close the series by the grace of God relying upon his grace and savoring, absolutely enjoying the very grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace today. Father, we thank you that that grace is not merely a footnote, but rather it truly is your disposition toward us Father, we thank you that you have bestowed upon us not just grace, but grace upon grace. And Father, we simply today want to give you thanks for that. Father, I do want to pray for those who are here today who perhaps have had their thoughts changed, their minds changed in hearing your word. Father, perhaps there were those who 
thought in terms of merits and demerits, good, doing good, and eat versus evil works, good works versus bad works, and somehow considering even in the Christian life some sort of scale. Father, I pray that today your word has touched hearts and changed mind about the very grace of God, and that even as believers, Lord, our salvation is established not in our own merit, but by Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for that truth. Father, we thank you that salvation is not dependent upon us or our works or our merits. And Father, we thank you that losing salvation does not, cannot take place because of our sin. But Lord, we know most of all that through the power of the gospel itself, through believing and trusting in Jesus Christ, that you change lives and hearts, that your Holy Spirit lives in us. Father, that you are at work helping us to conform into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to pursue it evermore, not for the sake of merit or demerit, but rather out of love for who our God is and out of love for one another as we seek to edify one another and encourage one another. Father, may we be sustained by your grace, knowing that we have hope because of it. Father, I'm so thankful today that our future is not dependent upon us, but rather it is sure because of Jesus. Father, it's a privilege to be your child today, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.